Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to season two of the Pop Anime Comics Lounge, where I have with me comic book and concept artist David Nakayama, who has worked on several comics and video game comic-related projects. So thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Excited to be here. For all your career, you've been doing a lot of art with comics and other various projects around comic. When did you initially discover your artistic ability? I never really felt like I had this great gift. There are a few guys out there, like your Joe Matareras, but they were good at 16 years old, and they were just crushing it right out of the box and for me it was much more of a long hill to climb and I knew it would take a long time but I was willing to go on the journey so I just prepared myself to study for years and years and years and that's what ended up happening but I like to think I eventually got there. And you just said you were studying for years and years. What were some of the influences that really helped you to continue to study and be really interested in art? In high school I decided that I loved comics, everything about them, the drawing, the writing, collecting, all of that stuff and that I wanted to be a part of it. I got through college and I wasn't quite ready for any kind of professional work and got through Joe Kubert school wasn't quite there got to Top Cow through a wizard magazine contest of all things and learned a lot from Mark Silvestri and all those things combined I learned things along the way that ultimately got me to the level I needed to be the artists that originally got me excited about comic art in the first place were a lot of the image guys and in particular Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and Mark Silvestri those three guys were just blowing me away and I wanted so much to do what they were doing. And then later on I discovered Adam Hughes and J. Scott Campbell and just had a really great run-in with Adam Hughes at San Diego Comic-Con one year where it took 20 minutes at the DC booth just to look at my stuff, not like a formal interview, just he was nice enough to talk to me while I was standing there and he gave me great advice as I was about to go off to the Kubert School that just totally shifted the way that I drew. In college I was able to make up a course for myself where I just copied anatomy books cover to cover and did these like tracing paper overlays so I could understand where all the muscles connected and stuff. Frank Cho once said that was something that every artist should do to learn it. I really think he's right. That was extremely useful. And now to back up a little bit, and I'm curious, what comic books were you reading all throughout high school? When I started, it was all the image stuff, and before that, it was was really Uncanny X-Men with Jim Lee that just totally blew my mind. I didn't know comics could look like that. That one really knocked my socks off. I was just trying to copy his stuff and the other image guys all through high school. Every guy I knew was doing that. And it wasn't so much about the story at that point, it was just about the flashy art, and that was cool. And later on, it kind of shifted, if you remember, to be more of a story storytelling and writer-based medium. You got stuff like what Warren Ellis was doing at Wildstorm in particular, or what Alan Moore was doing at ABC. And those series, Tom Strong, and in particular Warren Ellis's Planetary and The Authority, those stories just captured my heart completely. I'm like, these are really compelling and have great art as well. So if you ask me what's my favorite comic of all time, because total package, it's probably Planetary, because that comic was just perfect cover to cover. So fast forward a little bit and go to your college, you made up a course that you were copying anatomy books. How did you go about even making up a course? And can you talk more about how every artist should trace and go through certain motions? Let me paint a picture for you of art school. Basically, every art school has a required course called life drawing, where you draw a real person standing in front of you, and the idea is to capture the lifelike pose that they're holding or to try and understand the anatomy. And the problem with it is they have all their skin on, so you can't really see the anatomy. I think those classes are valuable, especially when it comes to learning how the light works on the figure and how the gestures work. But if you really want to understand how a figure works 
mechanically so that you can make it up on your own without looking at a figure. I don't know how else you can do that except do what Frank Cho says, which is to really stare at anatomy and where the muscles are inserting into the bones and really understand things from a mechanical perspective. That's the only way that you're really going to make that happen. And because I'd read things like that and I knew I had to go through that, I went to my college professors and I said, hey, I feel like this is the path for me to put this information in my brain. What do you guys think? And they're like, sounds great. Make up a course plan. And they actually let me do it for credit. It was fantastic. And how do you feel that helps you as a comic book artist now to actually understand human anatomy and how the body moves and things along those lines? Let me put it this way. People who don't understand it, you look at the art and you can tell that the arm is twisted wrong or that there are some bulges there that shouldn't be there. It just looks wrong and feels wrong. It takes away from the art. In contrast, if you're referring to reference or some people take pictures of themselves to make it look right. Some people just have the information in their brain. But I do subscribe to the Frank Cho theory of copy these books, get it into your head, understand that from this angle, the arm is going to do this. And from this other angle, the arm is going to do that and be able to draw things correctly from any perspective and all out of your head. You're inventing it out of your head for the most part. Let's say you compose a cover with the X-Men and they're all posed a certain way. And if you're not able to call up what a certain muscle group is going to look like from that angle, well, then you might have to compromise what the image looks like. You might be tempted to draw it in the one angle you do know how to draw rather than the one that serves the picture the best. I guess the short answer is knowing that stuff on a mechanical level gives you the freedom to pose human figures in any direction under any context and gives you that flexibility to do what you need. And now having all this information, I want to talk about how you got to Top Cow. Your journey is very interesting because it really started with Wizard Magazine's Be the Next Top Cow Superstar. How did you <laughs> find this contest and what did you do for this contest? Top Cow has a long tradition of finding talent for years and years. Mark Silvestri has an amazing eye for talent. There's just a long list of guys he's personally pulled into the industry that went on to become a big deal, much bigger than me. There are the Michael Turners of the world and the Dave Finches of the world and people like that. This guy has got the eye and he's a fantastic fantastic teacher on top of it. So they have this program that they do every year where they bring in a fresh crop of brand new talent that they find out of nowhere. And that particular year, they happen to do it through Wizard Magazine, and I happen to be one of the picks. You know, I'd been trying for a long time to crack the system. I was doing the rounds at comic conventions and showing the portfolio and doing everything you're supposed to do. And it just happened that that was the break that I got. And, you know, it's funny, like if you talk to comic book art pros, literally every art pro has a weird story about how they got their first job. I think Silvestri once told me that he bugged a DC editor in his hotel room or something like that. Another artist that worked with us that year at Top Cow, he bought a foosball table and that was his way of getting in. It's always a funny and interesting story. Someone could make a book out of the weird ways that people get their start in comics. So uh, having winning this, what happened when you won? And how did that really get you into Top Cow? That was the prize. The prize was an internship for a year. One penciler, an inker, and a colorist who were brand new to the industry would come out to the studio and learn under Silvestri and other veterans who were there and hopefully rise to the level of getting their own book at some point. So when I was there, it was Mike Choi and Tyler Kirkham and myself were all pretty much brand new. And there were older guys like... Eric Basildua there, plus Mark, and it just made for a really cool little group of artists. We would all work together and learn under Mark, and I gotta say, like, the chance to learn directly from a pro is a way faster way to learn than 
the alternative. Trying to go it alone or even going to school is a slower process than just having the mentor over your shoulder teaching you things. And I still find that to be true even at the game studio I work at now where I have to be the mentor and I show junior artists how to digitally paint better or design better, create concept art better. It's really effective to work right over their shoulder and draw with them. That's the fastest way to get information into somebody's head. So having working with the colorist and the inker, as well as Mark Silvestri, what was the best advice that you got out of that entire experience? I'll never forget, on the very first day I was there, I was just sort of drawing Jackie Astacado darkness picture, and Silvestri walks up, the first thing he said to me was, I don't know if he's handsome enough. And I couldn't see it. It was too junior an artist to realize that I was doing a cartoony thing at the time, the faces were just ending up sort of warped and weird, and I couldn't see it. I couldn't step back and understand the problem with it. He was, in a very nice way, trying to push me in the right direction. That was sort of how it worked. I had a lot of bad habits that I kind of had to unlearn over the process of the time that I was there. And the real lesson is that you need to be really honest with yourself about where you actually are. Like, you can't at any point go, yeah, I'm pretty awesome. You are lying to yourself. It's much better to always think, oh, I wish I was a little more awesome, to want it and want to keep growing. The moment you think you've got it all figured out, that is when you stop learning and it's a big problem. And Silvestri was really, really good at helping you see things that were deficient in your work. Now, I'm going out here on a limb, but I'm assuming that a lot of your bad habits were broken as you got an opportunity to work on Witchblade. I got to draw one full issue of Witchblade, and I did okay, but I don't think it was my best work. I was still learning things. I was still in the middle of moving from a very cartoony thing to some sort of top cow thing. It was just sort of in the middle, and it wasn't really gelling yet, so it was okay, but it was competent, but it wasn't great. And then on top of it, at that point... I was doing pencils, and then you had inkers coming in and doing their own thing, colorists coming in doing their own thing, and none of us had ever worked before, and it was just not gelling, so you get sort of a mess. And for me, that was hard to get around for the entire time I was drawing interior comics. You'd hand off your pencils to other people, and sometimes they'd do great and sometimes they wouldn't. Same with colors, and by the time the book came out, sometimes it would be recognizable to you as your own work and other times not. So one of my great frustrations by the time I was out of doing interior comics was the lack of control you have when all you are is the penciler. So I thought about that for a long time as I got into the game industry, and when I eventually came back to do covers, just because I love comics so much and it was really hard for me to stop doing that. That was sort of like a way for me to come back. When I came back to do covers, I was doing it pencil, ink, and color myself just so that I could get to the image I had in my head more closely and not have to rely on the good luck you have to have to get a perfect match inker or a perfect match colorist who's going to do what you hope or better. It just made more sense to me to try to control it myself. And now to talk about a comic that's kind of in the game realm, but you were still doing the pencils and still working on it is City of Heroes and that entire comic. What was it like working with Dan Jurgen? And we can't forget Mark Waite, who wrote the first story arc for that series and who is one of my all-time comic book heroes. Think about this is my second or third comic book ever and Mark Wade is writing it and I'm just thinking, oh, this is awful. I'm just not worthy at all <laughs> to draw this comic. This dude is so much better than I deserve to work with and he was so great and so nice and he did such a great job and I just did not want to disappoint and it was tough. I could have done better. Our team could have done a lot better. I still think it was ultimately a good comic and I'm proud of that comic. 
comic and City of Heroes. You know, I worked on that game for four years and I drew the comic for over a year. I did conventions with them. Like City of Heroes was a big part of my early career and really close to my heart. So I'm proud of that stuff. But I don't know if the art still holds up. Probably not. The very first covers I was ever able to do in the industry were toward the end of City of Heroes. By the time I got to issue 16, I did the cover and the interiors all by myself, and I was so proud. I was just so happy with how it came out, and I think that's where I started to get the idea that, hey, maybe I should do this myself. I'll be more happy if I do. Obviously, City of Heroes was a video game comic collaboration, so how much freedom did you have in the entire story arc to draw it, and was it easier since you worked on the game and you were working? on the comic to do that type of work. They didn't happen at the same time. I did the comic for a long time, for over a year before I got to work on the game. There was never an overlap between those two, but I did get to work with some of the game people while we were doing the comic, and I think that's what gave them the trust in me to offer a concept art job there, because I was not prepared, really. A concept artist has to design and draw and color all at the same time, and basically just a penciler at that point. I could design characters fine, and they knew I could tell City of Heroes stories after a year of doing that. So I guess they saw something in me, but I couldn't color at all. I mean, they were super nice to let me come in the door and basically learn that on the fly. That's how it was. Just a really great opportunity I couldn't turn down. I learned a lot. In coloring, how does coloring work? You go into this job where you need to be able to design characters and color them and have only a rudimentary classroom knowledge of Photoshop. That's what it was like when I started there. And there was a senior concept artist Carolina Tello was incredible and just sat me down and walked me through how to paint in Photoshop and some tricks there. And it took me a while to get a handle on it, but eventually I did. And it's just that when you're starting off as a colorist, the easy thing to do is, okay, Wolverine, he's wearing yellow and he's wearing blue. And so you pick a yellow and you pick a blue and you fill it in like it's a coloring book, right? But there's so much more to coloring than just the local color of the character. There's the lighting of the particular time of day and there are bounce lights happening from the environment around it. Color sets the emotional tone of the piece. So if you blew out an image, it will feel more sad and somber. And if you warm up an image, it will feel more violent and energetic. There's definitely a mood to go with each color. And I knew none of that at all when I started. So learning those things and making them work was a process that happened basically behind closed doors when I was a concept artist early on. By the time I got back to comics again, and as a cover artist, fortunately, I knew a few more things about color than when I had left. While doing all the coloring and doing all this work on City of Heroes, how is the comic received by the fans of the game? There had been a comic series before ours that went for 12 issues, and I think the players liked it. And then ours came out, so we were right off the bat being compared to that other comic. And I think that Mark Wade's name alone, that's got to be a big deal. Like, people playing the game were definitely comic fans. I'm sure his name meant a lot to them. You had Top Cow Art Team doing the art. I think the production value, you could safely say, was a little stronger than the previous comic. But I'm not sure our storylines went as deeply into the mythology of the game as maybe the players were used to. So the reaction was that in some ways it was better, 
in some ways it was not as strong. And by the time we got into our second year, I think they were starting to get more aligned. They brought in writers from the game to help out later in the series. And I think that definitely helped align the stories much more closely with what was happening in the game and probably to the fans' great delight. But overall, I mean, it was a free comic that you got as part of your subscription. What's not to like? Now, after City of Heroes ended in 2007, you came over to Marvel. What yeah. was it like coming to Marvel, considering that you were reading a lot of their comics in high school? Well, not just high school, but starting in high school and every week, like clockwork, since then, up until that moment and continuing all the way till today. I am in the comic store every Wednesday like everybody, and it is still the thing that is closest to my heart. My whole career is like I fall into something and I feel super unprepared for it. Maybe people can identify with that, but when I got to Top Cow, I was not prepared for it. When I got to Concept Artists, I was not prepared for it. And likewise with Marvel, I didn't really feel prepared for it, but I worked super, super hard because at least with Marvel, we've seen the Hulk drawn 10 billion times, and you have sort of a quality standard that you have to meet. So I just sat there redrawing things until I felt it at least met this quality standard that people understand from a Marvel comic. I just spent all my time on it, making it as good as I possibly could. I still think those Hulk comics I did look pretty great looking back on it. And your big thing was Marvel Adventures. You did, you did a lot of Hulk issues. You did some Fantastic Four and you did some Spider-Man. What was it yep. like kind of doing the core, or at least three of the core Marvel heroes? It was a gift. These are iconic characters that I cared a lot about. I feel the same way working on the Avengers Academy game now. These are just characters that I absolutely love and I feel like I know very well from probably about 25 years of reading the comics. So to draw them is really just a gift and a treat. I didn't work on any of them very long except for Hulk. Worked on Hulk for about a year, and the other ones I only had for a couple of issues, but we did a really great Spider-Man Gets the Powers of Thor issue that's been reprinted a couple times since, and our Doctor Strange Hulk issue got reprinted recently when the Doctor Strange movie came out, so some of those books live on. That was definitely super fun. Is it a badge of honor for you when your book gets reprinted or your issue gets reprinted? Who wouldn't like that? Most comics probably get printed once or twice and then they sort of go into the dustbin of history. But anytime a book of mine gets reprinted, it's nice to think that new people might be reading it or experiencing it. That's not really lost. I do love that. And with Big Hero 6, it was the same thing. That book was a really small, under-the-radar title. Definitely put my heart and soul into that thing. Did a ton of research and a ton of costume designs for it that I was really proud of and really moved the team in visually a new direction. I just put everything I had into it. It was not a sales blockbuster. It was not everybody's favorite book that summer. It was a very quick miniseries that was under the radar that didn't really do a lot for Marvel. And I thought, wow, okay, well, that was completely forgotten. And I was sad about it for a long time. And then the movie, out of nowhere, happened. It was the weirdest experience you could possibly have. I totally thought, there's one of those dustbin books that no one's going to ever think about again. As proud as I was of it, I don't think anyone cared about it. And then to have it come out and be a movie and be really successful and for people to care about those comics and want the number one that was a trip did you know that the movie was coming out nope. how does that make you feel that out of nowhere that all of a sudden it's the next big thing it's like i was talking about before it was like just the biggest emotional roller coaster you can possibly imagine wow i'm super excited to be working on this book with christopher claremont and then oh this book was totally forgotten boo and then oh my god this book is a movie what so just from super excited to pits of despair and then back to beyond excited again that whole experience was crazy and obviously chris claremont is 
a legendary comic writer. I got into comics because of that Jim Lee, Chris Claremont run. So he was a very big figure in my mind of the comics I started reading. And after Big Hero, I found him at a comic convention one time. And it was really important for me to shake his hand and say what his work had meant to me and how excited I was to have worked with him on Big Hero. And it was very quiet and humble and pleasant. But I'm glad I got to say that to him. And now as an artist, what is it like when you go to a comic convention and you're not a guest necessarily, but you're just walking around? I've been in this weird few years because I have a family now and I do have this full-time job working on games where it's really hard for me to take off for comic book conventions. So for a good 10 years now, I've been away from the comic convention scene. I only go to one every once in a while. There was one in San Jose called The Big Wow Show and went there a couple times with my son and it's fantastic. It's super fun. You do see these artists that you admire so much, try to buy us an Adam Hughes sketchbook maybe, or get a Mike Mignola signature or something. Frank Cho was a big fixture at that show. I think I've mentioned him about 20 times in this interview already. <laughs> He's obviously really important to comics as far as I'm concerned. It's just a great opportunity to shake hands and express what you think about these amazing artists. And I don't do it from the point of view that I'm a peer and I'm also a comic book artist and we should hang. I don't say who I am or I don't think they know who I am anyway and I just as a fan I just go up and I say I love your work please sign my sketchbook I love you bye and now before you mentioned that you do a lot of covers so how are you approached to do covers for Marvel and you do a lot of cover stuff for Zenscope? I did do a lot of stuff for Zenscope. It's been a while since I did anything for them, but I do quite a bit for Marvel. Thank goodness. I love it so much. I hope I can keep doing that until my hand falls off at the age of 89 or however that plays out. As long as they'll have me, I'm very glad to be doing Marvel stuff. The way it works is editors have different books and different variant cover assignments that they need done by a certain time and they'll write you an email and they'll say, hey, are you available to do this? thing and if it's marvel calling the answer is yes for me like whatever it is i will make time to do that cover because that is about the most fun i have doing those covers so anything they want to throw at me i'm super happy to do and sometimes they'll throw something at you completely unexpected like for example deadpool the duck we have this series deadpool the duck that's coming out very soon in january imagine that being dropped on your lap hey how about doing covers for deadpool the duck i hadn't thought about deadpool the duck but yes please that sounds so crazy it might work and the result is surprisingly one of the things I think I may be most proud of in my entire career. I think that whole series is going to be incredible from a writing and drawing point of view. And I'm really, really proud of the five covers that I did for it. And I'm very curious what makes a good comic cover work as well as how much freedom you have with the covers you do? I think what makes a comic cover work is it's a piece of marketing art at the end of the day. It's supposed to draw attention to that comic and make people see it before they see other things on the comic book stand. So it has to be different somehow. I look at it as a two-step process where first it has to visually grab somebody's eye. You can use color or composition or some combination of those to, to do that. Then it has to amuse, entertain, surprise, shock, give you some kind of emotional reaction once the person is actually looking at it. So 
sometimes if it's a really great pop culture reference or just something really unusual on a comic cover or a style people don't normally use, anything to stand out and to give the viewer something different. I think the one that springs to mind recently is we did a Deadpool the Duck cover for number three, and I pitched Marvel on this idea about it just being Deadpool the Duck's battle plan as rendered in crayon right before he's about to invade the enemy camp. So it's just a series of really crudely drawn but super ultra-violent moments of how he thinks he's going to win in this invasion scenario that he's cooked up. And I don't think I've ever seen that on a comic book cover before, so that's the hook, right? That visual thing that is supposed to make the viewer go, huh? What is this weird thing? I need to look closer. And then the reward, once you look closer, is that there are six or seven little gags in there about stupid things Deadpool the Duck thinks he's going to do, like kill a dude with a swordfish or whatever it is that's sort of fun. I like where that cover ended up, and I like to do covers like that that offer you some kind of reward for looking at them and investing in them. And you do both regular covers and variant covers. Is one more fun yeah. than the other? I don't think they're different in terms of the way I approach them. The assignment from Marvel is usually something like, hey, we need a cover for this book, and usually that's it. Sometimes they'll say, oh, it needs to have this sort of tone to it, or it needs to have this other character in it. But more often than not, it's just literally you get the character, and part of the job is you go home and you think about it really hard, propose five to eight little ideas of possible covers, and then you pitch it to them, and then they pick their favorite one. They have a cover committee that looks at the options and decides the best ones. So when you get that answer back, then you execute on the idea that they chose and try to make it as cool as you can. They're looking for the same thing. They're definitely trying to find the standout thing that isn't just the same cover that you've seen a thousand times before. How many times have we seen a team of characters on the left attacking team of characters on the right? It's boring. There's nothing special about it. You can dress it up to a certain extent with beautiful art, but it doesn't say anything past the initial read. And I think for something to really capture the heart of the viewer, it needs to give you a little bit more than that, like an extra level of thinking. A guy I really respect right now is Mike Del Mundo. Just about every one of that guy's covers has a deep extra layer of meaning or a visual joke or something in it. He's pretty amazing for that. And do you feel, since DC has so many comics coming out every week, and so does Marvel and so does Image, that cover really is necessary and it needs to be a grabber because there's so much competition out there? It's marketing. With so many comics out there, why is anyone going to pick up your comic versus the one right next to it? I don't have $3,000 to spend every Wednesday. I could buy four or five books, and chances are the books I'm going to buy have really cool covers. I have my favorites, like if Arthur Adams is drawing the cover, I'll probably buy it no matter what it is. Or anything Adam Hughes, whenever he does something, I will buy it. And that's all I need to know. But if it's based on the story or the character, then it might be the cover that tips the scales to buying that book versus some other book. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the covers and my two favorite covers that you've done of Grim Fairy Tales, Wonderland, issue 34 and issue 36. Because it's an amazing temptation of Callie Lytle and Alice Lytle. Those are among the more recent ones I did. And I did a batch of Xenoscope covers back when I was a comic artist. And then I came back and did another series of Xenoscope covers after being a concept artist. Basically, in the intervening time, I learned how to paint. So <laughs> that second series of covers you're talking about are very painted. And I looked at lots of real photos, tons of different people in similar poses, and basically put together these paintings with the idea that I was trying to 
to make them look like photo shoots of real people. There isn't someone there actually doing it. It's not a paint over. It's referencing a hundred different images at once and compiling something together. So that's how those were formed. When you're doing a Zenoscope cover, the whole point is for it to be a cheesecakey classic Gil Elvgren pinup thing. That's all I'm trying to do with those, right? I'm trying to channel Gil Elvgren and not just do something that's titillating, not just sexy, but hopefully have that second layer that I'm talking about. And Frank Cho does this so damn well. By the way, for those at home playing the David Says Frank Cho drinking game, take a drink right there. Sexy plus funny is a really nice combination, and it makes it so much less tawdry. It can get sleazy if you don't approach it with a sense of humor. So in the Callie one, the sort of cheeky way that she's playing cards while she's doing it, or the Alice one, she's got a little bunny there with her. I think if those elements weren't there, it would be less fun, it would be less humorous, and it would be more salacious. And I don't want to be salacious just to be salacious. I want it to feel like one of those classic pinups from the Golden Age of Illustration. And both of these covers were done with the 10-year anniversary in mind. Did that right. play a factor into your building of these covers? I did three of those. Beside the two we talked about, I also did one for Grim Fairy Tales with Sela. To some extent, I was trying to do something that felt it encapsulated the essential quality of the main character for each one. My favorite of the three from that perspective is the Sela one, because she's standing there, she's holding a giant book that says Grim Fairy Tales on it, so you're not quite sure if it's referring to the comic or possibly the actual Grim Fairy Tales. And then in the background, it's got the actual text in German from one of the original Grim Fairy Tales. I like that combination, that extra layer of stuff to get invested in, on top of it being a pretty girl in the middle of the picture. You also asked if I was trying to sum up the series a little bit. I think with the other two, they wanted a photo shoot kind of thing. So it's very clean, it's very simple. The white thing makes it feel like a photo shoot. So there's not a lot of storytelling in it. It's just a sexy picture. So I guess those two don't really sum up much as much as the Sela one, but they were doing their own thing. And both the Callie and Alice were just reissued in the 2016 photo shoot edition that just came out. As an artist, how does that make you feel that your work has been reprinted again? On one hand, I love that they are reprinting it and they feel like these are some of their better images that they want to put their best foot forward with. I wish I knew about it. I wish they gave me a copy. I wish, though, that they clued us in a little bit more about the reusages of it. I like doing an upcover here and there, and there aren't too many outfits that do it besides Zenoscope. I would love to do some more stuff with Zenoscope, but sometimes Sometimes it's hard to be on the same page with them. And now to talk about another cover that might be a little bit more popular. It's your Poe Damron. How did that cover come about? That was one of those, hey, do you have time to do a variant cover offers? And I'm really easy. If Marvel says, hey, do you want anything? I'm like, yeah, I do. I'm really excited about it, no matter what you have to throw at me. I'm all in. I love all those characters. Anyway, the Poe Damron thing, it was a really unusual idea. They wanted to have a cover with the green space bunny character who's like sort of a joke in the Star Wars universe, whose name I've forgotten. It was supposed to be that guy is flying Poe's X-Wing and BB-8 is looking freaked out about it. I drew it that way and then ultimately for some reason we had to not show that character on the cover so you can kind of see him in silhouette on the final cover. But the version where you have that actual character about to pilot the X-Wing, that exists. I have it on my hard drive, but that's how it came about. People, because of the chain, I wasn't sure how people would react to the final cover, just the silhouette, but it got so much more attention and love than 
I expected. People were really jazzed about that cover. I don't know if it's just because Star Wars is really hot and was particularly hot at that time. And what is it like for you to have the opportunity to draw something Star Wars related for Marvel? It's amazing. I love it. The way I explain it to people is that I'm an equal opportunity nerd. So I love my Marvel. I love my Harry Potter. I love 80s cartoons. I love Star Wars. And I love them all equally. I'm very excited about all of those IPs. Any of the above. Love all of them. Very, very happy and feel really lucky to draw those things. You know what's fun about it too is every artist has their own interpretation of these characters. So it's really fun for me to see how Adam Hughes or Jay Scott Campbell or anyone you choose to throw out there, everyone does it in their own way. And it's fun for me in the same way to try to do it my own way and put a little spin on it. And now being that you're a comic artist and you've done so many covers, have you ever got any of your work CGC? I have not personally. Every time a comic of mine comes out, I make sure to order about five to ten copies, depending on what it is, at my LCS. I don't know why. I don't know if my kids are going to care about it someday or not, or if it's just a good thing to do to support your own work. It's just really fun to go to the comic store and buy something that you worked on. Some of those reasons probably why I do that, but I don't think about it from a collector's standpoint, really, at all. So I don't really store them with backer boards very much. Definitely never slabbed anything. I'm really excited if people do that though and at your local comic store um, do they know who you are they eventually figured it out and they're really cool and nice to me they'll send me text messages they'll be like hey you forgot to order your usual five copies of rocket raccoon number four did you want us to order that for you i'm like yes thank you for remembering that please order those for me that's the kind of extra service they'll give me they know i want them and sometimes i just forget and they know how much i love frank Cho or adam hughes take a drink if one of those guys does a variant cover then they know without me even saying anything that they should pull it for me. And now on a more serious note, I think we covered so much of your career, but I'm very curious what advice you have for people who want to get involved in the comic industry. My great advice is, I've said it before in this very interview, you need to be honest with yourself about where you actually are and be prepared for how long it's going to take. If you are like me and you're not Joe Matarera and you're born already knowing how to draw, it's going to take years. I forget who originally said it, but it takes 32,000 hours to master something. That's true for everything and it's definitely true for learning how to draw. So unless you're born a genius, be prepared to spend 32,000 hours to fail and fail and fail and fail and then be okay for a while and then eventually get good and then be great. It's one step at a time and it will take forever and it will require tons of sacrifice of your time to do it over the course of many years. At least that's what it was like for me and I still feel like that process is ongoing today and will be forever until I croak. If you love something enough, you're going to make it happen. It's the perseverance thing. That's what it's about. If you want it enough, you will spend the time to make it happen. And the other thing is you often hear artists who are afraid to copy other artists' work because they feel like it's cheating and it's bad form. I would say the opposite. I think the way to find yourself as an artist is to directly copy the artists that you like. And what happens is you absorb different pieces from each artist you love, and the unique concoction of those things helps you find yourself. It's actually a shortcut for becoming yourself, because at the end of the day, it's your brain that's saying this is good and I like it and you're finding the puzzle pieces in other people's work to help you get there so I definitely think young artists should not be afraid to copy from other artists work also life drawing limited in its usefulness go copy an anatomy book that's where it's at finally 
Do you have anything you'd like to promote? Facebook, Twitter, website? I'm all over social media. If you haven't already, like my Facebook art page. Find me on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, my own personal page on Behance. Those are all great places to find me. I try to post all my content there as much as I can. And guys, I could not be more excited about the new Rocket Raccoon series. It's Matthew Rosenberg drawing. I think people are going to be absolutely blown away. They'll buy the comic because they like Rocket Raccoon and they won't expect the writing to be as good as it is. So definitely pick up that series. It's going to be awesome. I'm also really excited about Stuart Moore's Deadpool the Duck series, also in early January. Not to mention Slapstick, which is by Fred Van Lenty and Riley Brown. They are doing this amazing animation send-up. So in issue two, for example, he fights basically He-Man. And then in issue three, you have a send-up of My Little Pony. In the fourth issue, imagine G.I. Joe, but they're all dogs. They're called the War Dogs, and they fight against the evil organization called called Scratch. So War Dogs, America's Best Friend, and Slapstick number four. All good stuff. As always, thank you for listening to this week's episode, and you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio, and anywhere else where you listen to your podcast. And while you wait for next week's episode, you can check out popanimecomics.com for articles relating to anime, comics, and pop culture, as well as you can follow us on Twitter at popanimecomics for all updates regarding this podcast. Till next week, everybody, have a wonderful week.